This is the reality. And a special hello to you. Welcome indeed to The Reality. My name's Dudley Anderson, and it's really my pleasure to be with you again, sharing the story of a life touched and changed for the good, for good. If you have a story to tell of what God has done in your life, I would love to hear from you. Do drop me an email, dudley at surereality.net. Today on The Reality, we meet John Lawson. John suffered the breakup of his parents' marriage at an early age. His mother was forced to move into a house in one of the most dire council estates in Glasgow, Scotland. Here John learned to protect himself by adopting a violent lifestyle. Soon he found himself engrossed in a life of organised crime. Money was his god. Subsequently John ended up in prison, serving a five and a half year sentence for extortion. However, the persistence of a Nigerian friend in prison led John to experience an encounter with the living God. That night when I was locked in my cell, I, I decided to open the Bible. I actually opened it up in the book of Ezekiel. Um, and it was the very first thing I ever read in the Bible. It's from Ezekiel 18, 27 to 32, that says again, if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he's committed, and if he does what is just and right, he will live. I knew I was a wicked man. So the following Thursday, I went back to the Bible study to ask this pastor, how is this possible that God can give a man a new heart and a new spirit? This is John Lawson's story. I was born in Glasgow in Scotland. When I was three, we emigrated to South Africa. I was raised in Durban to the age of 10. My father was a, a policeman in the Durban City Police. My mom had a, a nice job in, in, in a a nice shop and uh, life was vastly improved from the poverty of of glasgow in in the 60s and uh, life seemed to be going well but when i was 10 my mum had to quickly return to the uk because my grandfather was terminal with cancer had a few weeks to live and so a decision was made my mum my little brother who was a baby came back here and they were going to stay till after the funeral i stayed in south africa with my dad i was still at school and uh, we were approaching the long holidays, and my dad picked me up from school. We broke up a day early. When we got back to our apartment, though, my dad said to me that he had to lock me inside. He had to go to work, and he may not make it home that night, and I should just look after myself. What we didn't realize is my dad was having an affair with another woman, and uh, he decided to go off and have a holiday with her and, and leave me alone in the apartment he didn't even leave any food out which was just ridiculous and um you know at that time of year it's, it's the hot summer it's very humid in durban and uh, i waited for my dad to come home that night and he didn't come home in fact four days later i was found drifting in and out of consciousness on the living room floor when some family friends broke open the front door i hadn't eaten or drunk anything for about four days mm-hmm. And for a 10-year-old, that, that's just not a good place to be. Wow. My next memories are being put on an airplane by myself and brought back to the UK where I joined my mum, who was in shock that my father had told her, don't bother coming back to South Africa. Our whole life was there in South Africa. Um, my mum was staying in our grandparents' house with another one of her sisters and her kids, so it was very overcrowded. And... It, I felt like um, an alien in, in my own home country. I, I just did not feel 
British at all. I wasn't used to the swear words from the other kids at school, the disrespect. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it, it was a big, big change. My grandfather died fairly quickly. My grandmother got very sick after that, and she died within a couple of months. And so my mom had lost her husband, her home, both parents, all within a matter of months, and we were now homeless. So it, it was a massive change to the whole family structure. We then found a place to live in Scotland. Um, we didn't have any money, so we were forced to go and live on a housing estate called Drum Chapel, mm. which at the time was known as the most notorious place to live in the whole of Europe. Mm. And um, I was really shocked on my first day there, um, playing out in the street when an older boy came along and opened his jacket and inside his jacket he had a hatchet, an axe, mm. you know. And uh, I said to him in my little South African accent, <laughs> I, what are you going to do with this, this axe? Are you going to chop some wood? <laughs> and uh, he, he said to me, I'm going to chop your head off. Oh, my. And I just ran upstairs and, you know, I, I called my mum, mummy, and these kids just didn't, it was like, ma, hey, ma. Mm. And so I stood out like a sore thumb. First day at school, I got into fights with, uh, I was so polite. I, I'd never been in a fight before in South Africa. Mm. I was really keen on my rugby. I was a sportsman and sportsman, a sports boy. Mm. <laughs> and um, I, I just was picked on, put against the wall and, and, told in, in some nasty words that again I was going to get my head kicked in and would I like to have a fight after school I was so polite I just agreed to have a fight and <laughs> um, somehow I managed to win the fight I, I landed a lucky punch and this boy had punched me in the head so many times I discovered an ability to be able to take a punch without falling down <laughs> and the next day in school everybody wanted to be my friend so I, I quickly put two and two together on that housing estate Uh, You weren't popular because you were into sports or by how kind or nice you were or your family. People respected violence by how hard you were. Mm. And that really was a shift in my mentality. I got heavily into martial arts and I used violence then as a a means to just express my, my anger. I became an angry young kid. I really hated the police. I remember my father was a policeman and on that estate, a lot of drunken men would beat beat their wives up, and the police would do nothing. In those days, they called it a domestic, and it wasn't. It was between a husband and a wife. Mm. And um, my mum would often open our flat and as a refuge for these women who would come in with broken noses and blood all over their faces. And the police would come and do nothing. And I just, it just angered me. I wanted some form of justice. Mm-hmm. When I left school a few years later, by now we'd moved back down. North of England, and we were living in a place called Birkenhead, which is near Liverpool. And uh, I went to an all-boys school. It was a, a rugby school, which I was very pleased with, and I excelled in rugby. But I was also had a violent mentality. Now I would get into fights at school, and the only thing that saved me were the sports teachers from being expelled because they always wanted me in the, in the first fifteen mm-hmm. in each year, and that's the only reason I think I stayed in school. But as a young lad with, with no father to, to guide me, mm-hmm. I would be out doing stupid things, Dudley, breaking into factories, shoplifting, stealing what I could, because I just wanted money. I believe money 
and I, I wanted to help my mum as well. I wanted to give her money, and m- my mentality was all wrong. When I left school, I was drawn down to Soho in London. My uncles had got connected with the Maltese Mafia, who were predominantly running the sex industry in Soho in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. Mm. It, it's mostly Eastern Europeans today. Um, but they had got connected through through prison with these Maltese Mafia, and they had become, I suppose, in that industry, very successful, very rich, making lots of money, running peep shows. Mm. And these, my uncles were making 40,000, 50,000 pounds a week mm-hmm. from, from these places, and uh, they had hostess bars and and adult pornographic shops. I mean, anything to do with pornography and the sex industry, my uncles were into it. Yeah. And I, I went down to work with my uncles. I made a lot of money, maybe 10, 15 times more money than my friends back home were, were making, working in factories. But this would lead to my um, first time in prison where an American tourist didn't want to pay his very extortionate bill and I kung fu kicked him in the chest and forced him to pay and he ran into the arms of the police. I was sentenced to nine months in prison and it did nothing for me but turned me into a bigger criminal really. Hmm. When I got out of prison I had to go back up north uh, to let the heat die down and you know I was only good at fighting and so I became a bouncer working in, in nightclubs all over the northwest of England um, I worked with a team of men who were predominantly ex-Special Forces soldiers, and we were a very tight unit. I was very confrontational. Um, I have a lot of blood on my hands, really, I'm ashamed to say. Um, and our company began to use us then to go to nightclubs all over the, the northwest of England where the local bouncers had lost control of the situation and maybe intimidated by local gangsters and how you deal with that situation is you bring in a, a gang of experienced men who are not going to be intimidated by reputation mm. um, and then you clean the place up and you know cleaning the place up inevitably escalates violence um, and then um, you bring in a new team and you move on to the next place so the level of violence was climbing in increments I thrived off of it and at the same time I led a double life because I was a family man, I was married and had kids, and um, but by now I was getting into quite serious crime as well, um, for just to make a little bit of extra money, my friends and I would begin to rob drug dealers, we found them an easy target, we kind of felt we were doing society a favour, at least that was my excuse to get into kidnap and extortion, um, and it just, it just began the cycle of robbing drug dealers, or they they nickname it in, in areas like Manchester, taxing drug dealers, hmm. because a drug dealer can't go to the police. So it was a win-win situation for us, and again, the violence had escalated, and now we were committing a lot of violent crime with shotguns and holding men hostage and robbing them. Hmm. It was just ridiculous, really, Dudley. Hmm. Um, I, I needed a, an outlet for, for all of my anger, really. I trained as a bodyguard, to kind of really revitalize my career, so to speak. I began to work with some really famous people. For a short time, I worked with uh, the Rolling Stones when they Mm. came to visit Edinburgh. And and I would boast to all my friends about how me and Mick Jagger were best mates. But (laughs) really, I probably had one conversation with them the whole time I was there. You know, it Mm. turned out to be the most boring job I ever had. (laughs) Sitting in a hotel corridor uh, outside Keith Richards' room for 12 hours on a night shift staring at a door 
for 12 hours and maybe seeing him in the morning with a quick hello and that would be it. Mm. Uh, no one to talk to, stuck in a four-foot corridor all night. And uh, it wasn't as glamorous as I made it out to be. Mm-hmm. But, but by now we were moving in circles where there was a lot of money. Um, and again, I'm just giving you the highlights here for the sake of time. It was a very violent affair. Mm-hmm. But um, the circles we were moving in, there was a lot of money. I went to prison again for a second time working for my uncles and in that prison. Um, and it was only a short nine months sen- sentence. But in that prison, I made some connections with some guys who were involved in what they call the carousel fraud, where they set up false companies here and in Europe, and then they they invoice the government for VAT for uh, a million pounds worth of goods, which they haven't spent. They would get £175,000 back from the government on each deal they did, and they were doing 10 or 15 deals a month. Mm-hmm. Gosh. And um, the, these guys were you know, driving around in Bentleys and Porsches and Ferraris and and inevitably, they would rob each other and rip each other off. When those kind of people have a problem with money, they need a professional team. They can't go to traditional debt collectors, of course. Mm-hmm. And so now these people would come to men like us to go and chase their debts and collect all the money for a, a large commission. And so one of the first guys had stolen £13 million pounds from, from our client. And he wanted his money back, of course. We sent a team, there was four of us. We went over to Spain to track this guy down. And we stood to earn about 1.3 million in commission. Hmm. It was very lucrative. And we went over to Spain and uh, we decided we'd have to kill this guy, really, because he had enough resources to come after us. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately for him, on the day that we planned to take him down and kill him, um, all of his family turned up for a holiday. And we were sitting outside, dressed as police officers with weapons and stun guns, ready to go in and take this guy down. We had to call the job off and and go back at a later time. Well, back in the UK, we began to get into more more robberies, taking people down, uh, robbing drug dealers, holding men hostage. You know, my whole world now had become embroiled in kidnap and extortion and shotguns. It was a crazy mentality, and like I say, I convinced myself I was a good guy. You're listening to The Reality, produced by Sure Reality, a listener-supported radio ministry. We depend on the generous gifts of our listener to produce this program. You can help reach millions of folks with the sure reality of the message of Jesus by becoming a Sure Reality Vision Partner. To partner with us, please visit the website surereality.net and click on Become a Vision Partner. If you've just clicked on in or tuned on in, it's really good to have your company. My name's Dudley Anderson and you are listening to The Reality. If you've heard anything thus far in our programme that has raised a question in your heart, I'd love to answer that question. Please drop me an email dudley at surereality.net If you have any comments or questions, email me dudley at surereality.net the Down the Reality, we've been speaking to John Lawson. We've heard how John and his family moved to South Africa from Britain when he was a baby. Sadly, however, after his parents split up, his mother returned to Britain with John and his brother. They moved into a very dire council estate near Glasgow, where John learned to defend himself by becoming violent. 
When he grew up, John entered the world of organised crime. His life of crime grew until, as a trained, hardened bouncer and bodyguard, he eventually joined a gang to collect debt from fraudsters. John Lawson was a violent professional criminal and extortionist who believed that he was the good guy. He was making lots and lots of money until he was finally tracked down by the law and sentenced to five and a half years in prison for attempted extortion. It was in prison that John Lawson's life was changed for the good, for good, by the reality of Christ. Let's continue listening to John Lawson's story today on The Reality. I began to realise that my actions really now for the first time had an impact on my family because my wife and kids had to go into temporary accommodation and the house had to get sold and I was all over the newspapers and it was it was very embarrassing for my wife who had no idea of the level of crime that I was involved in. Mm. And um, it was just a crazy time. So it didn't take long before she wanted out of the marriage and and we got divorced and my attitude was fine. I'll, I'll get out of prison. I'll get straight back to it. And it won't take me long to get all my money back and I'll find someone new anyway. But in prison, I made friends with a, a Nigerian guy who happened to be a Christian, and that was the one aspect of him that I didn't like very much. <laughs> but this Nigerian prisoner, he always had a smile on his face, he was always very kind, didn't want anything from you, but like I say, I didn't like the fact that he kept talking about Jesus and God, and I gave him a hard time about that. And um, he just would smile and say, look, I made mistakes on the outside, And but every Thursday, the, there was a, a pastor who came in from a local village um, to do a Bible study with the prisoners. And every Thursday, this Nigerian would invite me in the prison yard to go to the Bible study, and every Thursday I refused. Until one Thursday, hmm. he explained to me, he shared with me, Dudley, something very important. He said, you know this pastor who comes into the prison? Did you know he brings with him nice cake and coffee and biscuits? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, why didn't you tell me that before, you idiot? <laughs> Yes. Um, so I changed my mind and I decided to go to the Bible study so I could get my hands on all the goodies. And um, I was so disappointed when I got there because there was a table with sachets of coffee and, and biscuits and cakes. And well, the pastor moved us all over to the other side of the room and <laughs> said that we're going to have a bit of singing in Bible study first before <laughs> we have the biscuits. And yeah. I was just disappointed. And <laughs> I thought, I don't need this. All this. What's, what's all this singing? Yeah. What are they going to do, start singing hallelujahs and kumbayas or something? <laughs> well, there was 12 other prisoners there that night, murderers and drug dealers and bank robbers and a violent animal like me. And the pastor handed out these laminated song sheets and pulled out a guitar, and I was thinking, oh, here we go. But you know, the, these, these men, they just look so relaxed and happy in this environment. And in prison, you've got nothing to be happy about. And they began to raise their voices and raise their hands and lean back on their chairs. And they just began to sing with all their heart, uh, without care. And it just really touched me in that moment. I was looking at the words on the song sheet. And as I was looking at these words, it was a song I'll never forget. It was called Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. Mm. And I, I couldn't believe it, really, because my heart began to stir I, I knew i was going to cry really I, <laughs> you know that kind of crying dudley that starts off in your stomach and yeah. rises in your chest yeah, and yeah. you don't know where it's come from and well I, I i hid my face behind the song sheet because i didn't want them to see me crying you don't want guys to see you crying in prison and 
well, I, I, I cried like a baby, really. Mm. And um, I can't tell you much more about that night because I don't really remember. I just remember being back in my cell and having a bit of an uncomfortable sleep. And uh, I was wondering what, what the heck was going on. And the next morning, Friday morning, the guards unlocked my my door, my cell door, and um, there was a Nigerian standing there with a Bible behind his back, and he attempted to give it to me, and I refused. I looked at that Bible, and I said, I don't want that rubbish, thank you very much. Hmm. Well, for the first time, really, he the smile left his face, and he, he stared me right in the eye, and with his finger, he, he poked it on this Bible, and he said, let me tell you, this so-called rubbish is the very same thing which changed this rubbish talking to you. Hmm. And there was just something in his words and the conviction in his heart that I said, okay, give it to me. Hmm. And I, I, I threw it on my bed. And that night when I was locked in my cell, I, I decided to open the Bible. I actually opened it up in the book of Ezekiel. Um, and it was the very first thing I ever read in the Bible. It's actually, um, it's where I get the title for my book, my, my testimony has been written in the form of a book and my book is called If a Wicked Man and people say to me, why is your book called If a Wicked Man? Well, it, it's from the very first thing that I read in the Bible. I'd like to share it with you if that's okay. Mm. Um, it's from Ezekiel 18, 27 to 32 that says again, if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he's committed and if he does what is just and right, he will live because he considers all of the offenses he's committed and he turns away from them. He will live and he will not die. And yet the house of Israel says, oh, the ways of the Lord are not just. And God says, no, is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, I will judge each one of you according to your ways, mm -hmm. declares the sovereign Lord. Mm -hmm. So turn, repent and turn away from all your sins so that your iniquity, your iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Well, I don't know what those words might mean to some of your listeners, maybe nothing, but in that prison cell, I knew that I was this wicked man, and I had this desire for a new heart and a new spirit, but I didn't know how to get it. I, I, I knew I needed it because I was plotting murder and I had all these sins that I'd committed and I knew I was a wicked man. So the following Thursday, I went back to the Bible study, not to steal anything, but to ask this pastor, how is this possible that God can give a man a new heart and a new spirit? Hmm. And he shared the gospel with me, Dudley, in a very simple way, a way that was very relevant to, to my situation, being in prison. He talked about court and law and, and justice and, and mercy and, and grace as well. And uh, He shared it with me in such a simple way. He said, you know, John, you committed crimes and you stood before a judge in court and the judge found you guilty and you were sentenced to prison. But one day when you die, you're going to stand before God on judgment day. And on that day, do you think you'll be guilty or innocent, heaven or hell? It was as simple as that, really. And I tried to argue my case. I said, well, you know, I've done a lot of good things as well. I've given money to charity and 
when I was on bail, I rescued nine people from a burning building and I was awarded medals from the police and fire brigade. And, you know, I, I, I help little old ladies across the road. I love my family and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've done lots of good things. And he said, well, John, when you were in court and you told the judge that you rescued people from a building, did he just let you off with the crimes you committed? I said, no, he didn't, unfortunately. He still sentenced me to prison. And he said, well, in the same way, you can't bribe God with your good works. You're not on trial for the good things you've done, but for the bad things that you've done. Hmm. Then he said to me, do you know what God did for guilty sinners like you and I, so that we would not have to go to hell? I said, no, tell me. I really had no idea. He said, well, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this world, who lived a perfect life like no one else. And he died a very cruel and painful death on the cross to pay the fine that you could not pay. Mm. And I said, what do you mean, the fine I couldn't pay? He said, well, imagine you were back in court, and the judge said, John, I've got to send you to prison, or you pay a million pound fine. And you say, well, I don't have a million pounds, but some rich guy stands up and he writes a check. He pays your fine. The judge could do what is legal and just. He could set you free. You wouldn't have to go to prison because your fine was paid. And in the same way, when Jesus went to the cross, it was like he wrote a check for your life with his blood. Mm. And miraculously, after three days, the check cleared because Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive today. And he said, are you aware of the legal implications? I said, what legal implications? He said, God can legally dismiss the case against you because Jesus Christ paid your fine. Mm. And all you have to do to receive this free gift is just be willing to repent and then surrender your life to him. And while I thought about these things in in that prison, and it was about a week later, I kept going over in my mind these two things, as Pastor said, repent and surrender your life to Christ. And that was the first time I cried out to God, really, Dudley, in my prison cell. And Mm. I called out to God and I must have been there for hours, really, on my knees, crying. And and then I surrendered my life to him. And in that prison, he really did set me free. I felt like a free man, even though I was behind bars. Well, I left prison, like I say, in 2007. And uh, I joined a local church. I got baptized, which was just incredible. Um, And my life changed completely. Jesus rebuilt my life. I left prison with no possessions, homeless. And um, all these years later, my life is vastly different to how it was then. I went into full-time Christian missionary work, faith-based, no job, no income. The Lord has supplied for me for the last 16 years. Mm -hmm. I have spoken in some of the most violent prisons in the world, and prisons like in Guatemala and French Guyana to Australia and New Zealand and all all over the world. Wonderful. get invited to speak in Bible colleges and schools and, and churches and events. It's just incredible. Today, I've been married to Carolyn, a lovely Christian girl, for over 12 years now. I have a home and a family. And the Lord has just rebuilt my life and supplied my every need. You've 
You've been listening to a chat with John Lawson today on The Reality. If John has said anything that has just struck a chord in your heart, perhaps you're looking for that freedom, that liberty that John experienced as he gave his life to Jesus. I encourage you to simply open up your heart and say, Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin, and I ask you to come into my life as I give my life to you. Pray that with all earnestness, and I believe that God will change your life. For more information, do write me an email, dudley at surereality.net. Any questions, email me, dudley at surereality.net. The Reality is produced by Sure Reality, a listener-supported radio ministry. Please find out more at surereality.net. From me to you, as always, keep walking in the sure reality of Christ. Christ.